Tonight, we're going into the book of Judges. Um, We finished Joshua, Judges historically, right in line. So picking up where we left off. Um, And the book really covers the nation's history from about 1394 B.C. until about 1160 B.C. It opens a new chapter, really, in the history of Israel. They've been wandering, they've been fighting, now they're settling, now they're occupying this land for the most part. Um, you know, a, a large majority of the land that God had promised to their ancestor Abraham. And they, they have witnessed really an amazing phase of God's outpouring, outpouring of power and presence uh, like the world has never seen before. God has related to people. Well, he's been begun relating with this nation and doing amazing things on behalf of this, these 12 tribes, this group of people. And during one generation, um, God took this ragtag band of ex-slaves across the Jordan River miraculously by stopping those waters, heaping them up on one end of the Jordan River. God has smashed the walls of the city of Jericho and just given that city to his people. Um, He has delivered to those 12 tribes victory after victory after victory as they march through Canaan's land. Israel, we know today, Israel, Gaza, and the West Bank. God's people have been taking possession of those places. And so the 12 tribes have essentially, they've had a front row row seat to see this dazzling array of miracles, shock and awe display of power from God. They have experienced what it looks like as a people to walk hand in hand with the creator of the universe. And they are, for the first time in history, they're giving the outside world a chance to look at what it looks like for a people to be in relationship with God in this very special way. Unfortunately... Knowledge and insights are never enough to truly transform people. Never enough. And we're going to see this over and over and over and several more overs again throughout the book of Judges. Recently, I came across something David Brooks wrote um, in his book, The Social Animal. So he, he basically looked at social sciences over an extended period of time, a vast tonnage of research, and he boiled it all down to one simple statement. He said, information programs alone are not very effective in changing behavior. Information programs alone are not very effective in changing uh, people's behavior. So here's the explanation. I've got a slide for this. Both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and exercising self-control. But neither of these character models has proven very effective. You can tell people not to eat the French fry. You can give pamphlets about the risks of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry. In their non-hungry state, most people will vow not to eat it. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self 
fades. Amen. And they eat the french fry. Most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and of will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue unconscious urges. And what we found from the data is that reason and will work a lot like muscles. Not the strong muscles, but fairly weak muscles. Sometimes when the conditions are right, people resist temptation. People are able to control their impulses. Often, however, the norm is that people are too weak to impose self-discipline on their own. In many cases, people enter into a a state of self-delusion. For example, um, we can equate information with transformation. Like, if I know all the right stuff, I know the data, um, I'm set, change comes automatically. That's self-delusion. That's not the way it works. It isn't true. It never was true. It never will be true. And so change requires both reason and will, and it requires something else. It requires in terms of spiritual transformation, the deepest level of transformation in our lives, it requires God's help. And this will be proven true over and over in the history of God's people recorded for us in the book of Judges. And, and we know this, but it's good to just say this out loud. Just because one generation is faithful, is dedicated to the Lord, follows the Lord wholeheartedly, it doesn't mean the next generation will be. And I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking about our time working uh, in Brazil. Most Brazilians, I don't know, the numbers vary, but um, about 90% of Brazilians will, will say they are Catholic, would check that box, I'm Catholic. Um, in fact, it's kind of the default religion of Brazil. If you're not born, in, if you don't choose anything else, you're Catholic, you're Brazilian. Um, but it means virtually nothing to... 90% of them to say they're Catholic. It doesn't change their lives in any substantial sort of way, except that, and this is from my experience in Brazil, except they might cross their heart when they get worried or when they drive by a cemetery. They do that. When they drive by a cemetery, you cross your heart or you get some bad news. You cr- For many, there is little knowledge of God's Word. And on the willpower side of things, there is even less commitment or desire to conform themselves to the will of God. And I'm not picking on Brazilians. I mean, it sounds like I am, but really I think this holds true for people everywhere. Uh, I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. It's a statement that's easy to say, and it's easy to say and believe that you mean that. Uh, And oftentimes what I think is meant is, "Mm, my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians. Uh, I never chose anything else, so I guess I'm a Christian. You know, And that bears zero relationship to the content of what the Bible is talking about when it calls people disciples or Christians. Because a disciple is simply a follower of Christ. Um, and that's what Jesus has called us to be. Religion is, is sort of knowing God in a second-hand way. And I don't, I don't claim credit for that quote. I just couldn't find out who said it first. But I think it's a good one. Religion is kind of knowing God in a second-hand way. Discipleship, ah, that's walking with the Lord. 
That's knowing Jesus personally and putting him in first place in every sphere of your life, considering his will and his heart and praying that out in different decisions you have to make throughout life. So here's what we see in Judges chapter 1 and chapter 2 as we open this fascinating book. We see a people who know God, and I would say, yeah, they don't have the Bible like we have the Bible, okay? But they know God, at least in terms of knowing about God, knowing about the will of God in a way no one before them has. They have more data. They have a bigger uh, library of information about God than anyone has ever had. They know a lot of stuff about Him and about His will. They have data, but they don't have devotion. They have information. They don't have transformation. That's the book of Judges in a nutshell. Theirs is a default faith. Um, Our ancestor Abraham worshiped God, so of course we're part of that too. Now the generation that trusted the Lord, that crossed the Jordan, that saw the walls of Jericho fall, that experienced victory after victory as they walked hand in hand with the Lord, they they are passing away. I mean, Joshua dies here in the first, I think, chapter 1 of Judges chapter 1. His death is recorded. It might be chapter 2. But the next generation, as this older generation fades, now it's time for them to choose. For our generation, will we serve the Lord? Will we not serve the Lord? Will we put God first? And, well, they don't. Spoiler alert, book of Judges. They, they don't, but they don't put God first. And in the text, if you pay attention, you can, even in the first chapter, you can see the fault lines beginning to show up, kind of like in a house with foundation problems. The door frame's getting a little wonky. There's a little separation between, between the yard and the foundation. And you can see some things that are, I think we got trouble brewing here. Judah, the beginning of chapter 1, Judah is specifically this tribe, one of the 12 tribes, they are asked to go on a particular military campaign by God and to take on these remaining Canaanite peoples. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. The Lord answered, so God is speaking here. The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. Then the men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their brothers, hey, um, why don't you come with us into the territory allotted to us? A lot of bad guys there. Come with us and help us fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. Make a little deal here, right? So the Simeonites went with them. So the Lord sends them. Sends who? Judah. Do they go? Eh, kind of. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they go. But they kind of hedge their bets. Let's make some alliances here. Because, I mean, this could be a tough battle. And Simeonites could help us out here. So, so they get some assistance. Now, God never mentioned, hey, Judah, go find some friends to go with you and help take this land. I mean, they're the most numerous of the tribes and go and take this land, right? Um, But they thought they might need more hands on deck to get the job done, so they enlist other help. Judah, they have success, however, okay? They are victorious. In fact, they capture a guy named Adonai Zedek, who is a local king, and uh, they conquer his army. They capture him. They cut off his thumbs, and they cut off his big toes, and you may be like, why do they do that? 
Well, that kind of turns you, no, no opposable thumb, no big toe, so you can hardly walk anywhere and you can't really do anything with your hands. And they did that because that's exactly what Adonai Zedek did to people he, he conquered. When he conquered kings and leaders, he would do that to them. And so he basically, in fact, if you read the, read the text, he'll, Adonai Zedek will basically say, well, this is karma. I mean, I did this to others, now you're doing it to me. So turnabout's fair play. Uh, and then we get more signs as we go through. So that's kind of like, huh, that's a little interesting how they got the Simeonites involved. And, and then more signs start popping up very quickly as we go through the book of Judges. We'll pick it up in verses 18 to 21. The men of Judah also took Gaza, Ashkelon, and Ekron, each city with its territory. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, They were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. As Moses had promised, Hebron was given to Caleb. We read about that a few weeks ago. Who drove from it the three sons of Anak. The Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there along with the Benjaminites. So Judah... We see them pull back from taking the plains because you know those folks down there have iron chariots. They had essentially the ancient equivalent of army tanks. That job's too big for us. Let's, let's pull back. We don't want to square up against those people. And you begin to see the tribes are making some calculations based much more on military stratagem, on their force strength than they make on their relationship with God. Something else is beginning to take priority here. The Benjamites find it too hard to dislodge the Jebusites, the residents of Jerusalem. And so they just decide, ah, we'll just live with these guys up here. And now we're just getting warmed up. The house of Joseph in verses 22 to 26 makes covenants... I mean, they swear oaths with some Canaanite folks instead of trusting God's covenant promises, instead of doing their job and expelling them from the land. Manasseh fails to drive different inhabitants from the land and eventually decides, well, we can't get rid of them, so they'll just become like forced labor. They'll become our servants. And that, you know, not only will we not have to square off in dangerous battles, but we'll also get some economic benefit because they'll become our servants. It's kind of a win-win, right? And so it makes more sense economically. It requires less work to enslave the foreign peoples instead of pushing them out, expelling them from the land as they were supposed to do. And so that's pretty much how it goes from the opening of the book of Judges. And we'll just pick it up here, verses 27 to 36, and just watch this repeating itself among the tribes. But Manasseh did not drive out the people of Beth Shan. By the way, very interesting place to visit if you ever go to Israel, Beth Shan, amazing place. They did not drive out the people of Beth Shan or Tanakh or Dor or Iblium or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. 
By the way, I would just ask yourself as you work through here, who is more determined as we read through these stories? Is it the local residents, the Canaanites, or is it God's people? Kind of looks like the Canaanites a lot of times. The Canaanites were determined to live in that land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the Canaanites into forced labor, but never drove them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Kitron, a Nahalal, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. <sighs> Nor did Asher drive out those living in Akko or Sidon or Ahlab or Aksib or Helba or Aphek or Rehob. And because of this, the people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. This is precisely what God did not want to happen. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Beth Anath, but the Naphtalites too lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land, and those living in Beth Shemesh and Beth Anath became forced laborers for them. The Amorites confined the Danites to the hill country, not allowing them to come down into the plain. God's people weren't allowed down into the good land there. Now the Amorites were determined also to hold out in Mount Heres, Agilon, and Shabim, but the power of the house of Joseph increased. They too were pressed into forced labor. The boundary of the Amorites was from Scorpion past to Selah and beyond. So in certain respects, the residents of the land seem to be more courageous than God's people, more committed more willing to engage in the struggle. By the way, I, I know I point this out sometimes. I've got to point this out again. I, there is no people in the history of the world whose own history, whose own literature is as brutally honest and self-deprecating and critical as the Jewish people's. I mean, they're the ones recording this history about themselves. And I think it gives great credibility to the Bible, to the historicity of the Bible, that the Israelites themselves are recording this stuff about themselves. Very honest. Not only about their victories, but also about, yeah, kind of went halfway here, kind of did a patch job on this, kind of didn't follow a God 100% here. I mean, it's very honest. And so from the beginning of the book of Judges, we quickly perceive that the Israelites are making faithless calculations, making cowardly choices, and resigning themselves to, eh, just live alongside the Canaanites. It's easier. And for the rest of the history that we will read in Judges, these idols, because whenever you are intermixing with idolatrous peoples, you easily drift into idolatry and for the rest of the history, not only in Judges, but even moving forward out of the book of Judges, these idols sort of become viruses in the faith, in the spiritual software of Israel. They cause crashes. <laughs> they cause catastrophes for years and years to come. So... We're going to have, as we go further into the book of Judges, we're going to have a changing cast of characters, her heroes and heroines. Um, 
and fascinating people and stories throughout the 21 chapters of the book of Judges. But this plot line that we see and that we've been talking about already, kind of a depressing plot line, it, it, it remains the same. It just keeps cycling through. Israel loses faith. Israel falls into sin. Israel bows its knees to the idols of these Canaanite peoples. Israel then is turned over by God to be oppressed and enslaved by these other nations. And the people of Israel become so broken and so sad that they cry out to God for help. And God hears their cries. And God remembers his covenant. And God, God will raise up a judge, a hero, a rescuer, a savior to rescue his people. And that person will save Israel. And I want you to check out this chart that I made. This is, it. This is the whole book of Judges right here. Um, the Judges cycle. Sin and idolatry, worshiping these other gods, falling in line with their customs, with their values, instead of honoring God first. This happens. Then there is bondage, there's servitude, there's oppression by the foreign power because God says, well, if you don't want me, okay, try going at your own. And so they're oppressed, they're enslaved. Then they cry out to God's supplication. God, help us. Remember your promises. God does. God sends a judge. He sends a savior to rescue his people. And this cycle just goes again and again and again. The one thing I, I couldn't figure out how to show this, I would say the cycle gets repeatedly worse. Okay. Chapter 1 and 2, nothing. The same thing is going to repeat itself, but it is a di- downward spiral. Most evidence in the way that the rescuers themselves... The quote-unquote heroes of the story, as you work through the 21 chapters, they get worse, okay? In the beginning, we get Othniel, we get Deborah, but we end up getting some really flawed and almost faithless characters who God uses as saviors. That's a sad story. And it kind of becomes a history book, Judges, about bad people doing bad things. It's interesting, though. It's a good read. There are great stories in the book of Judges because you've got what one biblical scholar calls, quote, trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. I mean, this is Israel's reality TV show. (laughs) Trashy tales about dysfunctional characters. And as we move through the book we will see that the judges, the heroes that God raises up, like I said, they get worse and worse, less and less heroic, more and more self-interested and flawed. So, great intro to the book of Judges, right? What are we doing here? Why study this book? Um, Why does God put this book into our Bibles? And why would we spend time uh, delving into this really depressing plot line? I'm glad you asked few reasons here. Um, there's a number of reasons that we would do well to spend time here, and I think they're all very good reasons to study the book of Judges. The first one is this. It is that God is the hero of the story. He was then. He is now. 
And Judges reminds us of that. People, there are, people are better and worse, but ultimately God is the hero of the story. It's not about people. Um, the Lord is going to work through flawed people in this book just as he does today and just as he did throughout the rest of biblical history. The bottom line is that people, not us, not others, we are not, we talked about this this morning, we are not the stars of the show. Uh, we are not the headliners. God is. And Judges, it's pretty clear as you read through Judges. It's, it's about God. It's about these people. And look, you're not going to find in the book of Judges, if you're looking for a book of virtues, let's, let's study these judges and let's learn how, how to be great leaders and, and, and great moral people. No, you're not going to get that from studying the quote-unquote heroes of the book of Judges. You're just not. Uh, what you'll see is a God who works in us and through us despite our flaws and even sometimes when we are in resistance to him. So that's the first thing we're going to see in the book of Judges. God is the hero. The second thing would be this. Everybody cycles through seasons of strength and struggle, mountaintops and valleys in their spiritual journeys. And so there is a need for revival, constantly coming back to God, constantly getting on your knees, a broken spirit crying out to the Lord. Um, spiritual highs do not last. Decline is going to occur for all of us. Desert experiences will be experienced by all of us, and we need spiritual reinvigoration. We need repentance. We need prayer. We need uh, to have the courage to call out the idols that are in our lives that are taking our hearts away from God. And we need spiritual leaders. We need God to raise some people up to help us recognize this stuff and to help us along the journey. Number three, uh, this one's pretty obvious in the book, that God wants his people to submit all of their lives to his dominion, not just bits and pieces, okay? not just afterthought, not just, well, I've got a free day on Sunday, so I'm going to give that to you, God, but yeah, the work week, you know. God wants all of our lives. He wants to be Lord of all that we are. And Israel, they kind of adapt to the neighborhood gods. They're keeping up with Canaanites. Um, it's not, and let's be clear, it's not like they ever officially reject God. We no longer believe in God. They don't do that. They wouldn't, if you ask them, they would never say, we reject God, we repudiate God. It's more like they never totally embrace God. It's more like that. Instead, they kind of find a faith that works for them and create a faith that works for them. And the truth is, God wants all of you God wants 100% of you. The fourth thing we see in Judges is that God is in charge no matter what the appearances are. All right, God is always in charge. God is sovereign. There, there are a lot of times in this book where it looks like God has checked out on his people. God is absent. God has abandoned his people. Things have completely gone off the rails for Israel and the situation is hopeless. And then... God shows up. And we discover that he was there all along. We discover that his love for his people has never changed. His timing? Yeah. That is going to be different from our timing. A lot of times. 
the ways he does, the ways and means of God, the plans of God, they're going to be different. My ways are not your ways. Neither are my plans your plans. But he's in control. Number five, I like this. God offers his grace to people who do not deserve it, seek it, or appreciate it after they have been saved by it. We get to see the heart of God, just how graceful, gracious, and how merciful he is. Again, this is not a book about moral role models. It's not. Uh, There are a couple of good examples of faith in the story, yeah. But most of it, not at all. It's a book that shows us that God's grace abounds to sinners. Number six, we aren't there yet. This world is not our true promised land. We long for something better. God does not want his people to get too comfortable here in this life. And people since these ancient times have tended to build their hopes, their dreams, their their foundations on this world, on what they can see, what they can touch, what they can experience here. But we see in this book um, that what is around us, the idols of this age, are not worthy of our trust, are not lasting. The Spirit is constantly pointing us toward eternity, pointing us toward something better, pointing us toward our permanent address um, and our life with God in paradise. Number seven, the final lesson I've got from the book of Judges as we begin our study tonight would be this. We need the Savior to which the entire Bible points. The world needs Jesus. We get some little small s saviors in the book of Judges, but all they do, these flawed men and women in the book of Judges, is they whet our appetite for the one true Savior that God is going to send. Um, And there is a lot wrong in this world, no doubt about it. Um, We have to go through difficult times. Israel did. We do. So will the next generations that come. And the saviors, with an S on the end, the saviors, the rescuers, the judges, they actually serve to point forward to the reality that we need a bigger savior. The judges may have been saviors in a particular time, in a particular place, But Jesus is the Savior of all time. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Savior of the world, the one sent to deliver all people from bondage to sin and death. And so let's pray, and we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. But let's come before the Father. Lord, we do trust in you, and we want to trust more fully. We have faith in you. We want to have a deeper faith. We have a love for you. We want you to help us grow our love for you and for other people made in your image. And Lord, we know as we talk about the flawed heroes and heroines and the people in the book of Judges, we're really pointing the finger at ourselves because ultimately we are flawed. Ultimately we have challenges. Ultimately we struggle. We fall. We have rich times with you. We have times when we kind of wander away. And it just reminds us of our need for you. That we will not find the answers that we seek 
within ourselves, within any other human being, with any idol of the land. We need you. And we are grateful. We are grateful that you sent the Savior, Jesus Christ, to come to earth to show us your love, to teach us, and then to die for us on the cross. And through his resurrection, to, to conquer the powers of hell and to give us a firm hope. Not in the things of this world, but in your kingdom reality. We cling to that. We want to be pulled forward through the good times and the bad times by your kingdom. We want to look at things with a kingdom mentality. Father, shape us, grow us through this study over the next weeks and months as we work through the book of Judges. Help us to be more and more like Christ, more and more faithful to you. This is our prayer tonight. In his name, amen. Let's stand together. Let's worship.